Hi, you're listening to the Duty of Care podcast, a podcast produced by the Faculty of Architecture and the Built Environment of the Delft University of Technology. This podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values platform, the TU Delft platform discussing values for engineering and design. I'm Roberto Rocco, Associate Professor of Spatial Planning and Strategy at the Delft University of Technology. In 2019, the European Union launched its European Green Deal, aiming to make Europe carbon neutral by 2050. We all know the transition to a carbon neutral economy is urgent, but will it be fair? Past transitions have always produced winners and losers, with the losing groups often facing unemployment and poverty, with dire consequences for social cohesion and social justice. Therefore, an essential dimension of the European Green Deal is the concept of just transition, that is, a transition to a carbon-neutral economy that is fair and inclusive to all, leaving no one behind. Sustainable, fair and inclusive urbanization plays a key role in this endeavor. With those ideas in mind, we organized a series of online events and courses that address planning and designing cities and communities for the just transition. By bringing together expertise from spatial planning, urban sustainability and resilience, resilience engineering, ethics of resilience and multi-actor systems, we want to discuss the values in social technical transitions and urbanization, namely issues connected to distributive, procedural, and restorative spatial justice, as well as citizen participation, democracy, and sustainability, understood in its three essential dimensions, social, economic, and environmental sustainability. In doing so, we wish to address the interactions between design and values with an emphasis on operationalizing spatial justice through inclusive vision-making and by using societal conflicts stemming from the transition as springboards to dialogue. So, we came up with the idea of this podcast. We wish to discuss and exchange ideas with academics, practitioners and students of the built environment to plan and design for the just transition with a robust understanding of the entanglement between spatial justice and sustainability. Today we have with us Suraj Yangde, speaking to us from the United States. Suraj is a Shorenstein Center inaugural postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Public Policy. He's the author of Cast Matters. In this explosive book, Suraj, who is a first-generation Dalit scholar, educated across continents, challenges deep-seated beliefs about caste and unpacks its many layers. Suraj. The floor is yours. Uh, the, the case study I'm going to present to you uh, is, is about another very populous uh, democracy uh, in the world, uh, which is India. 
And, and in, in, in this uh, context of framing India, especially talking to the urban planners, geographers, architects, people who really work with curves and geometries, it's very difficult to have a philosophical straight lining. So I'll also try to engage with you almost on, on a metaphysical level of my uh, project of putting the Dalit or what I call, or the former untouchables uh, of the India's or rather South Asia's a demography. Unlike uh, the uh, majority of the world, Latin America, uh, Africa, not Africa, but Southern Africa and some part of East Africa, Australasia, the white colonized country problem, uh, it, which kind of erupts into uh, normalizing and harmonizing the melanin content of an individual and thereby granting a certain superior status. That problems that we see in Latin America, in United States of America, and other parts of the world, we don't necessarily have similar problems uh, reflecting in the, in the tone and tonality of white supremacy. Uh, we have what we uh, uh, call and what we try to fight back is a Brahmin supremacy. Or in, a, <clears throat> in an activist context, we, we, or in academic context rather, we call it Brahminical supremacy. I will break down these new terminologies perhaps for some of you to, to really uh, make sense of what is this problem that we are gripping with, grappling with. Um, first off, the context of India's civilization uh, that we frame as one of those of antiquities uh, that had a, a pre- uh, uh, modern modernities existing in this context, which is of course the Harappa and Mohenjo-daro as being one of the, uh, if not ultimate, but penultimate civilizations that had redescribed uh, the uh, analogy of how you frame uh, 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 not only an utopia, but exercise it uh, into, into creating new urban locations. The Harappa and Mohenjo-daro was almost a challenge to what we have an immigration from Aryan, which is a Caucasus land, a steppe land into the Indian heartland and whereby a colonization, one of the earlier experiences of colonization was witnessed uh, in, in Northern part of India. Within that context, what happens is about 2,100 years ago, a law is drawn, a law, basically a law that, uh, that prohibits uh, all of that plus uh, much more what uh, uh, several, about 1,600 years later, Europeans did to the rest of the world. And then we see the mature form coming up again in apartheid South Africa and in Jim Crow uh, America. That form is a Varna system. A system, Varna literally translates into color system. This color system was later codified and made into a strict hierarchical caste system. A person who was born to a Brahmin a family was determined to be a Brahmin and Brahmin was an ubermensch, the top, the Nietzschean analogy of someone who is a superman. And if you belong to the second, third, fourth, there were four major categories that were divided according to your, uh, according to your caste status and thereby there were occupations given to you. The Brahmin, that's why, remained at the top. And then at the bottom most, where, who were not counted within the human ecology, were untouchables. Untouchables were the defeated tribes mm -hmm. of the native, uh, of the native uh, India, 
who were then subjugated uh, to dehumanizing uh, attributes. Uh, the uh, essence of untouchability uh, prescribes three forms. Uh, first is, of course, the untouched, the touch being the most uh, 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 poisonous touch for a pure soul. The untouchables were declared impure by the very virtue of their birth. So even now, my ancestors who were born were declared an impure touched being. Then there was a second aspect, which was very spatially uh, fundamental to maintaining caste system, uh, which was unseeability. It is, you were, not, you were not encouraged to see a person who belonged to the untouchable caste. So the sight of an untouchable would impure or defile uh, your existence. And of course, the third was unapproachability, uh, the, 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 the cutting of corporeal relations with an entire swath of population. Now, this is something that has been over uh, two millennia, been improvised over several years, but the primary doctrine that remained law of the land until the colonial regime, which mostly the British came and tried to intervene in this, was a document which was called Manu Smruti, which is translates as the law of Manu, and in a polemical language, it is law of the land. So this was how uh, the pre-colonial uh, apartheid existed uh, in, in the India, Indian space. Now, India gets independence or transfer of power rather 1947, but our actual country uh, gets to its on its own independence team in 1950. That's when our constitution, India becomes republic, where we then law of the land, which is basically a constitution, India's constitution, then grants various rights and, and recognitions to various communities. Now, within this uh, parlance, uh, what happens to the former untouchables? The former untouchables all of a sudden doesn't become touchable and neither do they become approachables or seeables. The urban infrastructure almost immediately replicates the model of India's rural society. Now Gandhi, someone who came from the Baniya, from the dominant caste, had glorified the recognition of the caste system, but also he had punctuated that with maintaining a strict hierarchical order, which was spatially segregated, which he called, which he basically borrowed uh, from, from a British man, uh, which was called village republics. So the village republic, it meant village are self-sufficient. We need to not rely on exterior forces. We can create our own business. However, the catch was the people who were doing the most filthiest and non-paying jobs were not given we're not up for that because the people who are already on the higher scale of economic order would definitely would want to get that because you have access to not only labor, but also to their surplus value, which the person, the worker in this case, the working class who produces is not able to account to that labor. And, and that's why the fashioning of village as being a subs, uh, sub, uh, self-sufficient substance didn't uh, didn't sit well with the lower caste or what we call the Dalit uh, population. And, 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 and to counter that, a call was made by Gandhi's arch rival, an untouchable leader in his own might, Dr. Ambedkar, who registered Indian Dalits to, 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 to appeal to them to leave the villages. Why would they leave the village economy? Because in rural areas, these were the people who lived outside village. Especially they were far, so even if they have to fetch a water, they have to come into the village almost one or two kilometers and sometimes uh, in, in enormous amount of time to walk. Second is their wholesome reliance 
of survival was on agrarian economy. And in, in India, the feudal lord belongs to the caste, which is on the dominant scale. So within the caste order, the feudal lord, in this case, the pure economic relations were inserted through caste lines. And that's why the, uh, uh, the vulnerability of you one is to be a minority and segregated outside of the village, almost on the periphery, and two, on relying on your oppressor who wants to exploit you, made the Dalit families uh, prone to atrocities. And that's why we even see today uh, major caste-based discrimination and violence takes place in the form of atrocities on these communities. So when they come to urban area, this is where it gets more interesting. What do they do? What do the Dalits do? Do Dalits then all of a sudden become part of an urban uh, economy? Uh, what they do, but they become as an informal economy. The reason state wants to maintain an informal economy, and many of you would, would, would know and attest to that, is to not aid to account to the value that the labor is bringing into urban economy, but also to to ignore from the state responsibilities of providing them the basic facilities of survival. And, 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 the, and the areas that Dalits occupied in urban locale eventually get translated into a slum areas. And the modern slums in India, almost 35% of urban India's population is a slum dwelling population. Now here's the catch of that, of every five slum dweller in India, one is a Dalit, which means about 28% of India's Dalit population taking from the 2011 census data is a Dalit, which means the, the, the Dalit existence overwhelmingly disproportionately is conditioned upon the urban marginalizations of this community. Now, how does that impact an agenda of equal utopian society that we usually envision and also to how do we bring a socialist perspective now one of the one of the catch in this is uh, when you when, when you when you read the annals of south african apartheid one of the uh, uh, one of the importance of 19 post 1948 south african apartheid system uh, managed to do was to not only segregate but condition the socio-political uh, uh, happenings of, of, of the black, white, and other so-called colored community. Within the Indian context, that was already happening in, in the early 19th century, where spatial segregation and the time one can enter a city and not for untouchables was already decided in Western Maharashtra, Western India, where a law was already passed. There were two reasons for this. One is, of course, according to the scripture, religious scriptures supported uh, by the Hindu dogma, uh, but also there was a fear of Dalit mixture with a non-Dalit blood, which is basically the fear of miscegenation. And that's why a clear-cut uh, uh, demarcation of what time a Dalit can enter and what time it, he cannot or she cannot was, was, was conditioned upon this, where the Brahminical civilization aimed to build upon this. Now you can find the parallels within the colonial societies in various parts of the world who basically followed the similar instances. But what we are talking about here in this case is it was predating some of the other instances that you read as one of those uh, perinicious forms. Now this then gets into the, uh, into the complicated agenda of environmental problems. Whenever we have uh, the, the, the agenda 
of, of, of the New Deal or, or the New Green Deal. Within that, uh, the, the Dalit consensus doesn't adequately fit or, 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 or affix to it because unlike the working class population in other parts of the world, of course, uh, China discussed about it being the black people, the native or the mixed race people. In India, it is about the caste oppressed people whose agenda then gets subverted into becoming a global uh, libertarian or liberal, or in some case, left agenda, whereas the Dalit livelihoods as a Dalit subject becomes dissolved. And I think it is upon this, the settlements, wherever settlements, like my family came from rural area, they got, they, they settled in urban area because they didn't have jobs and they were atrocities. Whichever areas they settled, eventually then started uh, developing their own little economy. And when eventually uh, the Dalits themselves over two generations created that area for themselves, state then started to come and extract taxes from them. And then you see that's why there is always a resistance between, between this population. Slum also brought something, especially urban, urbanity brought something to Dalits that was very important. And that was the idea of rebellion and revolution. They utilized the space of city uh, to talk about the liberal values of rights, capital R. These rights were fundamental to establishing their citizenship as an equal person. Even today in India, the many, uh, the many uh, uh, slum dwellers uh, are still the refugees of Indian nation. Uh, the, the, the country doesn't give them. Sometimes if they are Muslims, they call them Bangladeshis or people who are from outside the country. When it comes to Dalit, they call them criminals. And that's why the citizenship aspect remains contested in this space. Many urban planners have romanticized the idea of slums and, and, and tried to present to the world about this, this kind of comparing with favelas and other, other and, and, and Kenya slums or, or slum slums in Cape Town. Uh, the slum in, in the Indian context, most, most particularly, is a caste cosmopolitanism. It doesn't exist outside this uh, vicious form of damage that has been done to control uh, this enormous mass of people. And that's why it gives rise uh, to the two distinctions that we make. Untouchability was a social separation. In a normal context, what we have is a social separation between communities. And usually uh, that you can see in any, any form of, of societal order. However, when it comes to advanced form of untouchability, in addition to social separation, Ambedkar argues it is territorial segregation. An entire territorial control is taken away from this mass of people. And I think it is in this context, what we today see is uh, 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 the major cities in, 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 in India, uh, one is Kolkata, 60% of neighborhoods in Kolkata don't have a single Dalit resident. Now, let's talk about Ahmedabad or Bhavnagar in Gujarat, the Prime Minister Modi's former state, even state, 80% of neighborhoods in Ahmedabad and Bhavnagar don't have Dalit residents. If you go down to Bangalore, it's 21% of neighborhoods don't have Dalit residents. So what we essentially see is the Dalit labor that has been banished from, uh, from integrating into this has is not a new, it has been a doctored uh, policy uh, uh, space that was created for Dalits to remain marginalized and caste system 
is as we see the social segregation of caste people was immediately replicated in cities. Cities used the metaphors of development. It used the metaphors of economy. It used the metaphors of human rights. However, what it did not address was the near uh, duplicate uh, duplication of this uh, pernicious caste-based segregation into urban areas. And so to conclude, what we see in, 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 in this forms of uh, political uh, uh, weighing of, 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 of the communities in, in, in this case is where uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the broader neighborhoods, for example, one might say it's mixed. However, if you go on a ward level data and Navin Bharti has done an excellent work where what he did was he went into identifying the ward level data because within bigger neighborhoods, there are smaller wards, which is where segregation actually takes place. And the modern cities like Pune were already decided for the marginalized populations who belong to the lower caste or the untouchables were already excluded. And that's why the prime locations which were considered sacred, which is a Brahmin occupied space, remain Brahmin occupied space. And you can find that in cities like Chennai, in cities like Bombay, and in every other cities. What they essentially did was they created a gated community, which is almost equivalent to if you go in Johannesburg, in one of the uh, former colonizers, uh, the white population in Johannesburg occupies the Hyde Park. Of course, integration of some Indian Muslims who again be, be, uh, are part of the bourgeois uh, clan of that society. However, the other populations are then spread out in, in Soweto and as well as others, other slums, Alexandria and, and so forth. Similar form almost in, in, in its totality, excuse me, in its totality is existed. And that's why uh, the, the, the conversation in this remains fundamental to how does city hygiene is maintained. And this is the catch. The city hygiene is maintained by Dalit population, absolutely. 97% of city hygiene workers are people who belong to the Dalit community. If they decide not to work, the cities will have more definitive problems than what we have COVID right now. So when you are relying on the labor who is again banished to the to the to the uh, to the to the peripheral uh, locations yet we need their labor to maintain our purity the same purity that banished this untouchables their ancestors for by the very virtue of their sight is now is now wanted in urban locality to reproduce the same purity form where if you want to remain clean and if your shit needs to be uh, needs to be taken out of your sight you need a dalit labor and a dalit body to do that while at the same time the hygiene doesn't correspond to the neoliberal uh, promises of what it call bringing a, a, a egalitarian uh, uh, economy that definitely advances uh, the uh, the labor of the individual contractual uh, contractual arrangements of labor gets to two to three degrees. There is not just one contractor, but there are sub subcontractors who employ and state washes its hand simply because this huge population is is deprived of their rights. And if Dalits chose to have their own country, they will be the sixth largest nation in the world. That is the huge mass we are talking about. And within this conversational dynamics, what we need to then understand is how the Dalit rebellion then converts into becoming a state problem. And today, the urban dwellers 
who mostly belong to this progressive circles or the marginalized sections who protest against the values that were promised within urbanity are now declared as urban Naxals. Naxals is equivalent to the Maoist sympathizers who are using guns to fight. Today, these people are declared as the almost urban terrorists in, 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 in its location. And so the Dalit, if it was in rural, would be, would be terrorized by the feudal caste. If it comes to the urban uh, locations, it gets terrorized by the state and the people who continue to occupy the land and who, 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 who displace the majority of these people belong to a specific caste of people in Bombay. These are the immigrants, Sindhi community from Punjab who came, occupied the land and now is building and now is creating the new uh, high tower uh, uh, promises uh, of, of this developing economy. Therefore, I think when we talk about space, we need to understand Dalits remain the most oppressed people in the world and more particularly Dalit women. Dalit women are not just oppressed because they are women, they are also oppressed because they are Dalit for the caste, they are also oppressed because they are poor for the class and fourth, they are oppressed because they, they especially they are located on the most marginalized sections where their articulation cannot then foment into a new revolutionary dynamics. People ask me, can there be a Dalit revolution? I, I have a pessimistic response because unlike French revolution, when they blasted Bastille, we don't have that facilities in India because the people who will rebel will have to take three modes of transportation to get to the uh, to get to the secretariat or to the prince's office and the state then again controls and then it becomes the subordinate structure. I thank you all for your attention and I look forward to the Q&A. This lecture was originally recorded for the Manifesto for the Just City workshop, organized in partnership with several schools, the Institute of Housing and Urban Development Studies of the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, the Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina, and a number of universities who took up this exercise as a class exercise, notably Morgan University in Baltimore and the Cape Peninsula University in Cape Town, South Africa. This event was organized by me, Caroline Newton, also from TU Delft, Hugo Lopez, Professor Russell Smith from Winston-Salem University, Carolina Luneta from IHS in Rotterdam, and Professor Faranak Miraftab from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. This podcast is produced by Roberto Rocco and Hugo Lopez. Music by Hugo Lopez and Pablo Teixeira. Sound edition by Hugo Lopez. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for Design for Values research, education outreach, and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods, and best practices in the area of Design for Values. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for Design for Values research, education, outreach and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods and best practices in the area of Design for Values. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Music, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and if you want to learn more about spatial justice and our duty of care towards the planet and each other, Don't forget to hit subscribe. See you next time.